You're listening to the Talented Others Podcast, a podcast dedicated to shedding light on some of the most talented people in advertising. Not the mad men, the others, the talented others. Welcome to the Talented Others Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Seaton. Today's guest is the executive creative director at Imagine TMA, a very talented creative who has navigated the advertising world from a bilingual perspective. I'm happy to welcome Sergio Rodriguez. What up, Sergio? How you doing, Corey? How you doing, man? Appreciate you taking some time out today. Uh, you busy today? <laughs> busy always, but it's always a pleasure, man. Cool, cool. So so let's start with uh, your background. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Sure. Um, originally, I, I grew up in uh, Puerto Rico. I was born in um, a town called uh, Mayagüez, and I grew just basically it's on the west side of Puerto Rico, moved to the east side, the metro area. I grew there in San Juan for till I was like 25. Um, and uh, at age 25, then I made the leap over to the west and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, cool. So as a kid, when did you, when did you know you were creative? Were you like somebody who was always writing or drawing? Tell me about that experience. Well, actually, yeah. I mean, I always had that artistic lean since I was a kid. And, and it's interesting because I see it in my kids now. You know, I have two girls, and, and both of them are very artistic. Um, but uh, I've always had it. Uh, you know, I remember, I remember, like, very clearly, I mean, when it came to drawing, drawing always caught my attention. And I remember um, being very passionate and very analytical about it. You know, like... I would draw the same house over and over again, the square with a triangle on top. And then I, I found that if you throw a couple of lines to the side, it kind of becomes 3D. So, <laughs> you know, I started drawing 3D houses. Then when it comes, came to the body figure, it was really funny because I, when I, when I really think about it in hindsight, you know, I, again, it was the same thing, like step by step. And, uh, I, uh, I started drawing human figures that had really good hands, but everything else sucked because I didn't know how to do anything else until I learned the whole body, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I always had the artistic lean, and I guess when I was like about age, um, age uh, eight, ten-ish, it was really, really, really good to the point where um, there was these, there would be these competitions at the, at the, the school I used to go to. And they would they would never call me the winner because they thought my parents or somebody helped me do it. Wow! Like, they couldn't believe that I did it. So I always had that lean, and it always was something that I. I mean, to this day, I paint as a as another thing that I love to do. Aside from advertising, I love to paint. Was there a particular teacher, uh, or was there like somebody you know you had as a role model that kind of like you know helped you grow your talent or develop it? Um. You know, on the on the on the art side, like I was uh, before I went to advertising and the design side, um, uh, just there's this um, school in Puerto Rico called La Escuela de Artes Plásticas, which translates into the, the the School of Fine Arts or or what they call plastic arts over there. Um, and uh, every teacher in that school, one of them in particular, her name was Betsy. Um, you know, I, my mom would take me to that school just to polish my, my, refine my art. 
and uh, and they helped me discover certain things about about art. Betsy helped me discover painting in a way that I I had never seen them before. I mean, I remember before her, um, one of the first things she she gave us in that first painting class was she I had all these like huge sets of colors, and she took them away. She told me you're going to use red, blue, yellow, white, and black. Those are all the colors you need. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> she told me how to make all told me how to make all the colors out of those colors, and then I I learned that it's better to even mix on the canvas. All these things that you, that you can do with, with color, and then she was the one that kind of egged me onto that, you know. Yeah. So uh, she definitely had a had an imprint, and tons of other teachers also. Like even through my my university career, um, I studied uh, image and design at the uh, at the same school. So bachelor's degree there, and uh, one person that that helped me a lot was uh, a person who was one of the few women who was involved in at board and the industrial design side. So I was able to study industrial design with her. Um, and her name is slipping my mind right now. I wish I could remember it real quickly, but I, I can't right off the top of that. Okay. But she told, she absolutely was like a also a, a big help in terms of just looking at design from a holistic perspective gotcha. and as a discipline, you know, as an objective thing, as a subjective thing. Growing up, how did you, how do you remember advertising? How do you remember it influencing you? And, you know, how did you, how did you process it? Did, was it, was it entertaining? Was it something that you were like, I would love to learn more about this? Or was it just, you know, was it just something that just kind of lingered in the back of your mind for years? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a funny story because I, I originally, when I was, when I was about to graduate high school, I really wanted to go into architecture. And uh, the teacher at the time, or the, the school counselor at the time, told me that getting into the architecture school back in Puerto Rico was like a tall endeavor, and you needed to know people and have, and have leverage you can pull, that kind of thing. So she she pointed me on the to the side of uh, of uh, another um, course that was supposedly a mix of architecture and engineering. Turned out to be neither. So, so I, I, was, I have two years of whatever that was. And uh, I remember I was sitting in, the, in my couch and my mom was like just walking by and she told me, you should go to the School of Fine Arts. You, you, have, you have this talent and you could do a lot with it in advertising and all that thing. So, you know, I thought about it and I'm like, yeah, I should. And ironically enough, you know, I was by that time there was this print shop called Minuteman Press. This was like more than 20 years ago. And uh, they were looking for a person who could uh, speak English and know, knew the programs they were using, which at that time they were using PC-based programs. Um, I believe it was Corel or something like that was the name of the program. And uh, I may be dating myself here. But uh, um, uh, I went there and I told them, listen, I know English. I know the programs, and I'm going to be cheaper than any of the other designers that are going to come in here. And here's what I can do. I showed them my portfolio, and they hired me on the spot. Wow. And that's how I started into this whole graphic designer career. And as I discovered more and more, I saw that there's different ways you could go with it. Um, the, the, the publication route, the, the graphic design kind of 
at the production level print place and then the advertising space and the advertising space caught my attention because of the whole conceptual potential to it. It was more akin to my artistic inclination. It was a better, the better way to express myself, myself artistically. So after Minuteman Press, I went and landed a job in a magazine called This is Puerto Rico and Auto Tiempo, and I was there for like five years. And while I was there for those five years, that, that job it helped me finance my education um, at the, the, the School of Plastic Arts, or, or the School of Fine Arts in Puerto Rico. And uh, after I finished my bachelor's there, um, like almost like a year before I finished, I was able to land a job at uh, J&D Communications over in Puerto Rico as an art director. Mm-hmm. And that was my first real advertising job. And I was able to um, be under the tutelage of a, a person by the name of Carlos Davila Rinaldi. He was like a, he's a renowned Puerto Rican artist and a very well-achieved uh, creative director over in Puerto Rico. And uh, he really was the one that that taught me um, a lot of the what I, what I even to this day carry in terms of healthy creative thinking and seeing the creative process is an actual process and not this ethereal kind of thing that just happens. You know, it's something right. you can actually drive. Right. So what's the ad scene like over in Puerto Rico? Is it really competitive? Is the work really good? The work is, the work is amazing. Um, I think, uh, the ad scene in Puerto Rico is very, um, budget wise. It's very limited. There's a lot of, Again, very, very um, limited resources, which forces you to to be very innovative um, when you when you find approaches and find solutions to, to call the attention of people. So, the creative way has the creative work has a particular um, flair and a particular kind of smile to it that has it's almost like um, irreverent. You know, they say that if you if you live long enough in Puerto Rico, you're going to realize that you know. Every five minutes, it's a it's a party. I mean, everybody is in that kind of like uh, happy mode, you know, and that carries into the work. Everything has this whole kind of backhanded joke behind it, you know. And and, and you left that and all that good weather to come here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's come to Detroit of all places. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it's interesting because I I mean, they say you always want what you don't have, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So for me, the idea of the cold and the snow that was actually appealing, because I lived all the all the time in the heat. Wow! And when I was in Michigan, everybody who lived in the snow wanted to go back to the heat, and I'm like, "Wait, you go back to the heat? I'll, I'll stay here. I like this." <laughs> wow! So, what was the opportunity that uh, opened up that allowed you to come come to the U.S.? Um, I had uh, I saw an agency in Atlanta, which uh, I'll, I'll leave the name out because if you all understand why. Um, uh, and uh, I called them and I told them, listen, you have a position for art director, but I don't live in Atlanta. And I think I have, you know, the chops to, to be in your shop. And uh, they they told me it was interesting, but they couldn't fly me. And I told them, you know what? I'll finance my flight over there. I'll go over there and just um, let, me, let me start with you. And they told me, good, okay, come over. So I, I financed my flight, went over there. The day of the interview, they canceled on me. And I was like, really? After I've just 
funded myself to come over here and you confirmed an interview for me, you cancel it on me, knowing that I did it myself. Needless to say, I'm super disappointed, but I said, I mean, if I'm here, I might as well call other people and let them know. <laughs> so I, I went to a place called Dr. Dangle at that time, and um, I knew it wasn't an advertising agency, but they had a graphic designer position. And for me, it was a way in, you know? Um, so I went there, and I started as a, as a graphic designer for them. They, they were mostly health-related in their... In their um, projects and uh and i started there and i was there for like two years until um after those two years i was able to land a job here in miami with Im imaging as a matter of fact at that time and i was with imaging for like two years so i had to move to miami from atlanta and by that time i was getting married and stuff so it kind of all aligned perfectly right so you have a you have an interesting kind of in to advertising, being being bilingual, right? So you 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 can you can create in English, but then you can also create uh, you know really cool communications in Spanish, and you have a unique cultural insight. How has that kind of helped guide your path through this kind of creative world? Well, I mean, being bilingual helps you see a side of of being human that is driven by expression. And by that I mean, you know, you know, most people, whether we realize it or not, we think in we think in words. We might not say the words, but we think in words. And to the extent that you're able to express yourself, that's how you think. Um, and I mean, that's not like a huge epiphany, that's just a simple, a simple fact. Um, like in some cultures, there are concepts that don't exist that exist in other cultures, like in Japanese culture, for example, the idea of surrender is a lot different than the idea of here. It's a lot more related to failure kind of thing. Um, and I say that because, I mean, when you begin to see how, how different and rich the human experience is across cultures, then you're able to speak to it in, in, a, in a more complete way, so to speak. Right. So... So being bilingual definitely, I think, um, gives me an edge to, to understanding people in a different way and, and appreciating what goes into a culture. I mean, even if, even if you're here just in the U.S. and you're, you, people are not bilingual, just within American culture, there are all these subcultures. Right. And, and being bicultural makes you sensitive to a to playing off of that cultural lean and looking for what what fuels the cultural dialect out there. Right. Be it bilingual or be it just in English. I mean, it's just, you won't have the same experience in in, in the southern, kind of, kind of like the Bible Belt states than you will in New York, for example. And that's driven by culture. Right. So being, being able to just being pre-programmed to just be a hound for that kind of thing creatively, Mm -hmm. helps you sniff out a better, greater idea that'll be more relevant. Got you. Um, as a black creative, one of, one of the more frustrating things that I, I've probably encountered is when I work on general market work, nobody ever questions my insights or my reasoning for things. Um, but when I work on targeted work that's specifically for African-American, suddenly I have clients 
question why I'm doing it. It's like they're questioning my blackness <laughs> or how much I really know. So I find that I find that really frustrating um, and 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 borderline offensive sometimes. Uh, with the with the with the the uh, the difference in the language. Do you get that or does the language provide an opportunity to keep those kind of questions or those kind of doubts at bay? The language does provide a way to keep those kind of doubts at bay because half the time the clients don't really know what you are saying. But it's also tricky in the sense that a lot of clients will bring in a... a um, kind of like a, a multicultural Hispanic ad manager, for example. And uh, if that ad manager that comes in is really savvy and really understands how things flow, then they're going to be a true help to you. They're going to be an asset. But if that ad manager um, misses the fact that uh, here in the U.S., Hispanic culture is really a rainbow and not a monolithic thing, then you're going to have a hard time because you're going to have, you're going to end up trying to convince whatever country of origin that Hispanic ad manager is from trying to convince them that their culture, their kind of Hispanic background is not the universal thing for everything. You can't, you can't judge or speak the Spanish work that you do based on your filter. You gotta, you gotta be neutral with the Spanish and just apply the concepts in a way that are more universal, if you will, at the, right. at the Spanish right. level. Or if you're regionalizing it for the, for the Western states, then you gotta lean more towards Mexican. If you're going to the, to the more Eastern seaboard, the Southeast, then you gotta be a little bit more Caribbean. Northeast, you gotta be a little bit more kind of Dominican, Puerto Rican kind of thing, you know, so you, you need, you need to understand that there's not one broad Hispanic brush brush that will just paint everything. Right. And, and ad managers can somehow try to find that. And then the trickier aspect comes when, uh, I think, um, you get this, always this dichotomy between targeting, um, and when uh, my my difficulty for if anything has come more with when uh, uh, media companies or, the, or or any kind of third party media vendor would come in with their targeting based on media consumption, and I mean typically you try to find efficiencies and effectiveness at the media level, but at the behavioral level on the on the target side, it's not quite all clean cut. So you can't apply this whole media logic of your, they're, because they're watching English TV, that doesn't mean that Spanish is not needed. Right. Actually, on the contrary, I mean, <laughs> Spanish may be the thing you actually want to do in the middle of all this English TV experience to jolt the minds of those bilinguals out there because they are bilingual. Right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> How do you fight the stereotypes? I mean, I don't speak Spanish, but even I, just in my career in advertising, I notice what the what those stereotypes are. Like, I, if I see another ad that's focused on abuela, you know, it's just like, come on, man, it's, 
there has to be more than that. Like so pieces of culture to kind of, you know, to, to kind of fight those stereotypes. Um, uh, for me and my personal experience, focusing on what the strategy is for the creative and the brand, and then being free about how you build creative, um, it's the best way to fight the, fight those stereotypes. But then I'm not, I'm not trying to build this false um, emotional sentiment through the, the the easy reach of you know what I know to be the the, the trigger words, if you will, or the trigger items in culture. You right, know, right. The, for lack of a better way of calling it, jalapeno creative. I mean, you don't <laughs> you don't want you don't want to go there. Right. Right. Um, but at the same time, for example, I remember doing these ads that were really effective, for example, and um, and it was during World Cup time. And I remember I had a discussion with a creative director who told me they would never use a soccer ball in a Hispanic ad. And I'm like, well, okay, that's you. But we're in World Cup, and uh, these ads are pretty, pretty well-managed. The soccer ball happens to be incidental. So it kind of works. I'm going to leave it there. That's fine. Right. Um, because again, it's, it's about how you manage it and how you are being original to the context and the, and the conversation going on at the end of the day. Exactly. So it works. It works. World cup soccer really works with a soccer ball, you <laughs> right, know? Right. <laughs> now, if I'm just using a soccer ball during mother's day, because I'm trying to put a mom playing soccer, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, that's kind of strange. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even a horrible idea to even use an example, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've actually had the pleasure of watching you in action um, during our Chevy days, and I got to see you in some, some you know, really kind of important meetings. And, you know, one of, one of the things that always struck me about you was, and, and really you really gained my respect for was, you know, you always had a, a real point of view. You never wavered. And no matter how heated the room got, you were always a real cool customer. For young people entering advertising, talk a little bit about that emotional temperament in the midst of no matter how hot things get. Um, that, to me, I mean, I think, I think some of that, uh, you've you got to be kind of like, real on the one end that it has to do with your, you know, how you are as a person in a, in a, in a temperament, you know, I'm usually just, and I think I get that from my father. He's very low key, kind of just even keeled. Right. And, uh, drives my mother crazy because sometimes she's, she's freaking out because the house is falling down on fire and dad's like, yep, we'll just build it again. Right. (laughs) And if, Drives are nuts, right? So, so you know, to a certain degree, I got that from from him. I I gotta believe. But then on the other side, I'm also um also very disciplined about fear. Um, and I think that's one of the first things I learned with precisely with Carlos Davila, the, the person I mentioned over at, at J and D, and that's that fear is your enemy, not just in the in the world in general, but it's just particularly in creative, when you are working creative out of fear, 
it just puts you in the wrong emotional space to, to move forward. And uh, when you're presenting your work, if fear creeps in, creeps in and you just let it dominate you, it'll make you, again, try to just go for the excuse. It'll make you defensive. It'll make you, it'll make you do the wrong move all the time because you're always acting out of fear, and that's what fear does, right? Um, so when you are in those situations where, where you have to present your work, you have to defend your work, one thing that I always thought to myself is, you know, this person that's in front of me, they eat like I do, they go to the bathroom like I do, they're the same, they're the same person that I am. They're just sitting in the chair in front of me. And uh, what I am presenting to, to these people is just a fact. And it's the best, the best work that we have to present to them. I am confident about it. I'm confident about the idea. I've researched with the team. The agency as a whole has a position on it. That's very important. Know that it's not your position ever. It's the agency's position. The team thing. Right. So what I'm doing is actually not even defending my work. It is, at the end of the day, it's the agency's work. So I'm standing up for what we believe is the, the, the way you should go because of these reasons, because of these insights. So a lot of your studies, you understand why, why you are saying what you are saying and presenting what you're presenting. You are the expert. It's actually them who need to convince you that you are wrong. Right. You know, um, and, and I don't mean that in an egotistical way. I just mean that in a practical way because that is, that is what you should give the clients. You know, they are looking for that leadership and that thought from you. You're not there to kind of do what they want, quote unquote. You know, you're there to to help them get somewhere, and that and that's what they expect of you. Right. And I found that a lot a lot of clients, even at the, the higher the higher you go, the more clients appreciate that kind of leadership and that kind of conversation. And the most vital thing for me also is when things go wrong, like when the client doesn't quote unquote like something, I I have found that in my experience, again, when you keep fear at bay, that is one of the best things that can happen to you. Because then you can ask the client, okay, why are things why are things not working here? And when you discover the why of things aren't working with, that is an actual time where you can flip the tables and turn it into a collaborative session with the client where the client can actually feel like they are actually building into an idea and they're actually just working with you to figure things out. And that can be one of the most kind of um, bond building moments with clients. True. It's just a, it's just a matter of always just stay the course and keep fear paid, you know, if you could fix one problem in advertising, um, what would it be? If I could fix one problem in advertising, what would it be? I would fix the the, the underappreciation of thought leadership on the agency side. Mm. Um, yeah, because we, we are the experts. We are we should be yeah. viewed that way, right? Yes. But we, both, we, but we both know, <laughs> but we both know that doesn't happen. <laughs> exactly. Not always, not always anyway. I mean, and, and 
we, everything, everything, I think everything in an agency works together, right? And, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience. I mean, agencies come in various colors, but at the end of the day, they have liens. And it's very rare to find that one agency that's balanced in all aspects. But when it comes to liens, agencies will either lean to the creative side and, and be, you know, just very creative driven, which creates a lot of problems. Or agencies will totally lean to the account driven side, which creates a whole different set of problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think true thought leadership that kind of just brings the best recommendation to the client and the best kind of like guiding post to the client requires a balance in those liens. Um, and, uh, particularly, you know, like, uh, for example, when the agency is leaning a lot to the, to the account side, then account service, which is usually kind of like a, one of the lowest hanging fruit to please clients becomes the, 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 the way to artificially feel like we're making progress because we're doing everything the client said. Right. And it's, it's real easy to, to, to fall into that, into that, into that route. And if an agency leans to the creative side, then, then it's this whole kind of elitist kind of construct that is very destructive internally because nobody can participate in the creative process, which is one of the biggest mistakes anybody can, can, can make. And, and the creative process becomes this elitist experience that really alienates a lot of the, a lot of the sources for ideas that Sometimes I'm not even the creative themselves. It's somebody that just happened upon something and, and made you trigger a thought in your head. Right. So, you know, if we, if we could, as an agency, just realize that, you know, there's a value for everything and, and we shouldn't take any, any, any extreme leans one way or another and just go for what we think is best collectively and give each other room in our own right to, to, to exercise our roles. Um, you know, thought leadership will be whole in front of the client. Cool. I know you still love creating, but do you still love the business? I love both. Honestly. I mean, the, the, the business, I think the business I'll always love. I mean, it's, it's I'm, I'm passionate about what I do. Mm-hmm. Are there are there challenges, uh, people in there that make it difficult or or rough sometimes? Sure. I mean, there's 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 a lot of that, but just because of that doesn't mean that you don't you know you can't still do what you do. You, you can't. You just have to push through. You know, and I don't mean to be idyllic about it. It's just. It's just the way it is, you know? Right. So, and at the end of the day, I'm doing, I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm, what I'm doing because I believe in it, you know? Right, right. And you're making a difference. Yeah. Now, yeah. Trying to get into to advertising, you took a, a very unique path uh, in, into advertising, coming from, you know, even a different country, a small island country. Um, so what, what would what would your advice be for these young people who may be living in, maybe not in big cities, um, uh, as far as getting into advertising? The biggest, 
piece of advice I would give young minorities is to not look at themselves as minorities. And by this, I mean, um, here in the U.S., it's very, it's very interesting because the culture as it's evolved, um, there, there is this sense, and I might be getting political here. I hope it's like doesn't go there. I'll try to keep it off of political spaces, but, uh, but you know, we're barely a 200 year old country, give or take a few years. And compared to all the other countries, we're basically in diapers. So who the U S is going to be, who the uh, America is going to be is still kind of TBD. I mean, it's, it's, it's being evolved into that, you know? And, um, but yet somehow there is this idea that prevails that X people are the true Americans and then the other people are the minorities. And, and that's kind of like, that's, that works great from an organizational perspective, from a, from a kind of like a just polling perspective and it has many practical applications for the organizational society. Right. But when it comes to living as a human, you go to certain places in the U.S., and general market is not general market as one would think it. Absolutely. If you're in Miami, if you're in Miami, general market is totally different than general market in Mississippi. Right. You know, um, if you're in uh, Atlanta, general market is totally different than general market in California. So it's just um, a matter of understanding that you are not a minority as much as you're simply a human that brings a unique set of values, a unique set of experiences. And I think actually, if, say, gen market agencies or more, more mainstream agencies um, pick a lot more of these kind of like, quote unquote, um, minority people, they will be enriching their creative to a level that's just uh, impossible for many of their people to, to bring to the table because of the whole cultural experience and the cultural um, potential that they have being able to speak to multiple, multiple cultures. So if you're a minority out there and you're starting, you actually have an edge because you can speak to multiple cultures. And if you don't see yourself as a minority, you have a bigger edge because you're going to just, you're going to be the best you can be because your, your human capability makes you be that. Right. Yeah, true. I know. I, I feel like I, I've always had to educate myself of what was going on in broader culture in my own culture and then in all these other different cultures as well as subcultures, you know, which has kind of made me a, a student of culture, um, which is constantly changing my worldview. And I just find it odd that like we work in an industry that, you know, the, the overall worldview of the ad industry is changing so slowly. Yeah. I mean, it's again, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is driven by money, right? I mean, uh, the, the brands want to spend and kind of commit themselves to an quote unquote image that they are crafting. And the bigger the brand, the harder it is, it is for them to keep up because they got to move all this machinery that they put in place from a communication level 
at an advertising level, that's not going to happen overnight. Right. So you somehow have to, like, keep up without without being able to keep up at the pace. And then, and then you have to be the creative that justifies the need to change this because this is the latest trend in culture. And then the client tells you, well, we just don't have the money. We just launched this campaign a year ago. <laughs> so it's this catch point too, where that's where I think um, people need to realize that to keep up, you don't necessarily need to have the big launch at play. There are other things you can do to keep up at the at the grassroots level, at the at the social level, um, at the just the the viral level. Right. Just if, if, if you're alive there, where the conversation is happening. And keeping up is it's easier than you think. Just have to rethink it. True, true. Well, look, man, I appreciate you taking uh, some time out of your day. Um, we really appreciate it. And I'm, I, I hope that, you know, y- your story inspires the next Sergio Rodriguez to get into advertising. Thank you, man. Thank you. Man. It's always a pleasure to reconnect with you, brother. For sure, man. Best of luck. You're listening to the Talented Others Podcast.